Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Dr. Raj Balkaran. Raj is a scholar of Sanskrit narrative texts and the author of The Goddess and the King in Indian Myth, The Goddess and the Sun in Indian Myth, and several academic articles and book chapters since completing his doctorate in 2015. He is also an avid spiritual practitioner, having been initiated into ancient Indian wisdom traditions by multiple masters and having been engaged in daily practice for two decades. Also a seasoned online educator, he teaches at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, where he also serves on their course development board. He is the founder of the School of Indian Wisdom, where he teaches original online courses combining scholarship, storytelling, and spirituality to apply ancient wisdom teachings to modern life. Beyond teaching, research, and administration, Dr. Balkarin runs a thriving life coaching practice and hosts the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. So hello, Raj. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be on the other side of the podcast chair. <laughs> yes, I've, uh, I've enjoyed listening to some of your episodes that you've done for the, the New Books in Indian Religions podcast series, and it's a delight to get to speak with you. I feel like there's a lot of synergy between your work and your I, um, the way you identify as a scholar practitioner and really all of what we're on about at Embodied Philosophy. So I feel like it will be a, a fruitful conversation. Um, but before we dive into some of the topics I have planned, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own history and what's led you to the work that you do um, at the intersection of scholarship and practice. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's an academic journey that people are on when they end up doing a PhD or, or you know, really the, the goal, the, the primary goal for undertaking that level of education was actually a teaching goal. I wanted to teach undergrads. I wanted, I've known for some time that I wanted to teach and I thought, why not corrupt the youth? You know, they're very impressionable <laughs> at that age. And, um, and they're, they're looking for so much more than um, factoids. And that struck me as a meaningful um, vocation career, if you were. So that that was the plan. Um, <laughs> I started a degree in English with minors in history and philosophy. You know, you know, I didn't do uh, engineering or medicine. What a, what a rebellious uh, path for 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 somebody of Indian origin. <laughs> I studied Indian philosophy, <laughs> something that Westerners do. Anyhow. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. started doing um, uh, English, history, philosophy. Uh, after a couple of years, uh, there was a number of pressures in my life. I've been put through the pressure cooker a number of times. Hopefully, I'm, I'm, I'm puck. I'm fully cooked by now. We'll see. Um, but between that and my heart wasn't really in at the time I dropped out of my undergrad, and I had some sort of limiting beliefs about worth and um, you know just not. My my conscious thought was, look, I, I'm not smart enough for a degree, right? The unconsciously, it's like, who are you? Who do you think you are? You're not worthy of a degree. So I dropped out, worked in the private sector for a while, did some work, discovered uh, <laughs> discovered introduction to Hinduism the day it started in my dentist chair over my lunch hour. Uh, this was 2004. And I thought to myself, wow, they actually teach us stuff at university. Obviously, I understood it wasn't theology. It wasn't spirituality. It was history, philosophy. I kind of grokked that. But I didn't know religious studies was a discipline. But I decided to take this course, particularly because I was pursuing 
Indian spirituality for myself at that point uh, in my own life. Um, and uh, highest mark I got to date, uh, took severance, came back to school, finished a degree, finished another degree part-time, finished a PhD. And after uh, um, completing my studies in 2015, the job market was wretched and I was inspired to not go to the States. And within a few months, I understood why that intuition <laughs> was in place. And I stayed in, in Canada and I've been, I have been um, functioning as an independent scholar, producing scholarship all the while. Now, it just so happens that my object of study coincides with elements of my own spirituality, elements of my own heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in coming across religious studies, whatever that is, and coming across Hindu studies, whatever that is, really what I came across was a way in which I could do literature and history and philosophy but Trojan Horst as religious studies, as, you know, as uh, Puranic studies, the study of Purana. You know, I could study the, 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 the spiritual, mythological, religious narratives of ancient India um, in a meaningful way that could help me understand myself and the world, um, the world of ancient India and the world of inner life and the world of the modern West, such as the power of these texts. And so circuitous route but it feels in retrospect that they kind of choose you and they pull you in somehow absolutely so you know a few things several things kind of come up as i'm listening to your story one is you know especially from the perspective of embodied philosophy which tries to really augment the experience of the scholar practitioner you know it seems like as you're talking about this path that these things were kind of always in synergy for you so i'm curious um at doing the PhD, did the PhD feel like an extension of your spiritual practice? And um, what were some of the tensions that you felt between kind of this, you know, more, I guess, um, imminent experiential unfolding of sadhana and the sort of, you know, um, pretenses at least towards objectivity that are are particular to the kind of PhD academic process? Yeah, there, there are a number of pieces to my path. And it's so... Um... I'm sort of, as you would call, double diasporic in that my ancestors for the last five generations are from the West Indies. Um, I came to Toronto when I was very young, like very young, before, um, before kindergarten. And so I was raised as a Torontonian, a Canadian, a Westerner, with this cultural backdrop that was an extreme source of um, confusion and shame. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember <laughs> I laughed because I remember uh, in elementary school, I'd, 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 I'd be too ashamed of my Indian lunches and I'd throw them out. And like 10 years later, people were lining up to buy them elsewhere. <laughs> Behold, Maya at its finest. But this is this is a journey. So I, I was uh, I wanted nothing to do with religion, certainly not ritual, um, certainly not sort of organized religion. Always very spiritual, always very philosophical. I, I, I aspired after a philosophy minor in, in um, the first round of my undergrad. And it wasn't until the, 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 the chit hit the fan, so to speak. You know, the chit <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> that that um, 
uh, had a really, really dark period uh, in my life. There's a lot of uh, pressures that I was under and there was a lot of um, uh, emotional processing that I hadn't done throughout my life that I had to process. And so I had a really dark night of the soul. And I started getting up early in the morning. This was maybe spring 2003. And I started you know, sitting in front of the the shrine at home. And I just wanted, I was seeking. So I'm sort of a, I have a, a, a Western upbringing, seeking Indian spirituality. And after a few years of seeking, I discovered that I have an astonishingly Indian soul. <laughs> in that um, within a couple of years of, within about um, a year of, daily practice, I discovered the, the the academic study of Hinduism. So I thought, why not go back, uh, finish my degree? I need, I'll need this at some point in my life. And <laughs> I discovered this course the day it starts, Thursday evenings. Yeah, today's Thursday itself. Thursday evenings, I'm taking this course. And the woman who was supposed to teach it, uh, the lovely Artie Dond, uh, she's, the, um, she's the founder of the Mahabharata podcast. She calls me the midwife of her podcast to help her pop it out. It's her baby for sure. Um, she was supposed to teach that course, but she was away on that leave. She was busy popping something else out that year, her second born. And their session instructor who taught that course had a good friend who ran a yoga studio. And this good friend at the yoga studio had a teacher, a classical Indian teacher. I'll call him Mantriji. We'll just call him Mantriji. And he would come and give satsangs at the yoga studio. So when the course was finished, I was good friends with this sessional. Now she's a prophet at Nipissing University. Um, and it got pulled in that circuit of energy. And all of a sudden, I was sitting there in a, in a sangha full of Indians and white bodies, except I had a brown body, <laughs> and studying with a classical Indian teacher. Uh, and one thing led to another, and, you know, day in and day out, training of all kinds, all kinds of training, all kinds of texts, uh, very big on the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. These were the two most publicly exposited texts for the sake of um, uh, what he would call Moksha Shastra, right? Like, I want to break free. I think that's queen, right? Um, you know, we want to get out of here. We want to get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. Uh, this is the path out. Uh, by the time I met him, it, it was later in life. I knew him for the last 12 years of his life. From 2005 to 2017, uh, he passed. And it was just this, uh, this ineffable Shakti ride, you know, this, this spiritual ride, uh, half the things that I've experienced and been involved in are not to be believed, at least not by the rational mind, <laughs> perhaps posthumously I'll publish them. Who knows? But I was on this spiritual journey. And one of the great ironies of my life is that my classical Indian teacher who's teaching moksha, 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 detach, detach, detach. The thing is for, uh, advice is that one size fits all. So uh, when you give advice to one person, it's for them in that context, for their ripening, for their sobhava, for their mentality, for their desires. And he was adamant. He used to call me Raju. It's like, it's like Mike or Mikey for Michael. Raju, you have to finish your training. You have to finish your school. One day I said to him, I think I know what I want to be. 
said, what's that? And I knew he knew. I just knew. A twinkle in his eye, barely in his body. I said, uh, I want to be a professor, a university professor. He said, you are a professor. Only time has to ripen it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Only time has to ripen it. <laughs> it's just... I love that. So the, the, the majesty and the mystery in that in the, in the flash of insight in that moment. Um, so so here is my spiritual teacher saying, <laughs> go finish your education. You have to stay in the masters. My heart wasn't in the masters. I love the Valmiki Ramayana. My heart wasn't in it because it wasn't alive at the university. It didn't live. And it was my embodied teacher that said, no, you have to do this. This is this is for you. You'll understand eventually. And so I pushed through and I really discovered that, um, that I love narrative. I love stories. And uh, no matter how we study them, stories are stories. Even in an academic talk, the power of the narrative will, will wink at you, will move you. you know, just recently, I, I was able to host 10 phenomenal scholars of the Mahabharata. I do these Oxford Center for Hindu Studies uh, weekend events. They're called online weekend schools. And with a bit of coaching, they all let go of the scholarly anxiety and they were all able to teach accessibly. And it was a phenomenal weekend because in addition to all of the scholarship they were sharing, uh, what, what were they sharing but the narratives of the Mahabharata? So I learned that through narrative, I could mirror i could i could integrate the 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 the, the factoid gathering of, of of history and culture even philosophy and also the lived wisdom that lives in the story and so narrative for me was a way that i could bridge the two never in a thousand years did i think i'd study the devi mahatmya because at that point i was initiated into a number of goddess practices um and so for me it was like I'm not sure I'm interested in psychoanalyzing my mother for a PhD type thing. Like it's, you know, like it's not, it's, it's like I, I, for me, there are very distinct orders of reality. What I did at satsang was different from what I did at school. Um, uh, whining and dining is different from, from nutrient class, right? It was, it was palpable to me, the distinction. I have to turn my spiritual self off to do scholarship well. And I think for scholarship to be done well, it's a paradigm of what can we discern through the, you know, through empiricism, through the scientific method, you know, that is important. That's property, right? We have to understand property and how it works, at least on the gross level. But do you feel like being in those separate modes also mutually enforce and enrich each other? Or is it, is it like two different parts of yourself being expressed kind of self-enclosedly at different moments? Without question, having a palate for flavor is going to help me be a culinary instructor. Mm -hmm. But knowing the history of French cuisine, right? Knowing the history of French cuisine won't necessarily make me any better at tasting it or creating it. Right. So the life of practice will allow me ironically to be a better scholar in understanding what the heck these texts are driving at or, or, or sort of tasting the ethos they're in or the value system they're in. Uh, the life of practice can empower as long as I'm critically thinking and I'm using my brains and I'm not making false claims about empirical reality. I can do that well and it's powered by what I know to be true of the ways in which these texts are used. 
having said that, um, the scholarly realm doesn't enrich my spiritual practice itself. It enriches my relationship to practice, my relationship to the material without question. Teaching the Puranas, teaching the Mahabharata, it's really important to understand the divine might be eternal, but uh, texts certainly are not. People are not. Culture is not. And so to understand the historical horizon giving rise to a text is extremely important. But in doing japa and having a profound spiritual experience, um, history, sociology, uh, uh, even psychology don't help you there. And, and people who are only able to perceive those elements of reality, they can't understand that. And that has to be respected as well. There are different capacities, yeah. I don't think I've answered your question at all. <laughs> no, I think you have. One other thing I wanted to ask just about your kind of professional life is, you know, you've made a choice, it seems to be an independent scholar. And I'm I'm curious, you know, I mean, I think everybody kind of knows <laughs> based on what we're talking about and uh, and the spirit of your work, maybe. But what, what kind of um, justified the decision not to go a kind of traditional academic path? And what has it made it possible for you to do, do you think, as a scholar, um, being working independently from the university or the traditional university? Yeah, to be honest, uh, I'll be really, really honest with you. I had no idea that the path I'm on is possible. Um, I honestly did not ever envision, nor has anybody I've talked to envision, a path where one could be a productive, connected, respected scholar and not have a professorship. It's a bit of a walking contradiction yeah. at the academy. And I've stumbled upon it either by... I don't, who knows what grace, uh, the force of you know my personality, who knows, who knows networking. I don't know. I didn't know it was possible. So for the first two or three years, I was looking for a proper professorship and publishing all the while. And then after about two or three years of that, it became clear to me that I can continue publishing and I'm still publishing in the best publishers, academic publishers available. I'm still collaborating. Uh, strangely enough, technically I'm an independent scholar, but the academic world often looks to me to organize things. You know, I just one example is I'm co-editing a volume featuring the work of uh, 15 to 20 of the top scholars in Purana studies. So I'm a walking contradiction in that for some reason I'm able to function as if I have a professorship without the professorship. Mm -hmm. Now, without all the admin. I well, well, all of my admin is actually running my life, running my podcast, running yeah, the online school. Yeah. Um, so in many ways, I've talked to colleagues where, you know, I envy them for having the, the security and the status. I don't envy anybody. I'm sure you picked that up from me, but it's an expression, you know, it's sort of the grass is always greener. It, one wonders, you know, the security, the status, yada, yada, yada. And many a time they're like, wow, I really envy that you can produce scholarship and like do fun things like the podcast. You don't really answer to anybody. You work for yourself. So I stumbled upon this path because there were no professorships in my field. The job market is really rough in religious studies and uh, Hindu studies for sure. And the jobs that do crop up, the person who ends up getting them, it, they're demonstrably a better fit or research fit for what that institution is looking for. They may not necessarily be a better scholar overall or teacher, you know, but it's sort of um, uh, the market is, is fraught right now. And so I was in this position of waiting for the proper professorship to arise. And now I realize um, I would very much cherish a professorship who's 
values were allied with mine because I would love to teach undergrads and I would love to, to, to have a home. So some of, if I want to create a center for Puranic studies, I can't create it at rajbalkaran.com necessarily. I, I want to create it. I want to carve out a niche at the academy because that'll live. The ivory tower will remain when I'm gone. The online school might, it depends. So I'd love to have that institutional impact for the sake of what's coming after um, but at this point, I'm just kind of doing my thing. You know, I've decided I'm I'm here to produce scholarship. I'm going to produce scholarship pro bono, come hell or high water. It's why I'm on this earth. And I'll fund it myself. And how do I fund it? I fund it doing things I love. Two things, coaching people and online teaching. So to answer part of your question, online teaching, I think, is a huge game changer. Huge. This is why I just lit up when I talk to people like Seth and some people at the OCHS. It's a huge game changer, I think, for humanities uh, PhDs who want to find a way to make a living and still publish. Absolutely. And I think at the same time, of course, there's always going to be a certain kind of esteem affiliated with the traditional academia and, and, and certainly a kind of orthodoxy rules the distribution of that esteem. But I think at the same time, we're seeing really a kind of relinquishing of that paradigm of organizing intellectuals and scholar practitioners. And I think, you know, not just do I feel like I, you know, as the director of embodied philosophy, see embodied philosophy as, as, as offering an alternative, what someone said in our recent yoga philosophy immersion as the un-university. But I think other people are doing this too. And I have a friend of mine who's been working on this kind of what she's calling the Galileo Commission. And it's basically, I'm not sure if you've heard it, but it's sort of a, it's an organization of scholars who are all largely employed by traditional um, academic environments, but they are challenging some of the, well, first of all, the, the minimizing of the humanities within academia in general, and kind of responding to the kind of the way in which the university is becoming more of a technical school and the need for us to forge alternative collegial spaces for research, study, and practice. Uh, you know, and and so I, I feel like there's this movement happening away from traditional academia, and as it becomes more normalized, it's we're gonna see more and more of it, and it will be respected because the people who are also um, supporting it and who are populating it are also serious scholars like yourself and, and other people who believe kind of in the, in the mission of, of integrating scholarship and practice in that way. You know, what you say uh, resonates along the following lines. It feels to me like I've stumbled upon and or like the analogy that comes to mind most often is that I have, I have a machete and I'm in the jungle, you know, just clearing a space type thing, carving a path. It's not um, something I'm setting out to do, but in order to accomplish what I'd like to accomplish for me personally, it's something that's being done because I'm not going to give up the publication. That's something that, you know, I have the, the opportunity to, uh, to impact the production of knowledge on the Puranas or the Mahabharata or Hinduism or whatever, why on earth would I give that up? And so I have to find a way to fund that. But in doing so and, and remaining astonishingly connected, like uh, the online education was a bit of an embarrassment that I wouldn't want to tell academics about. Then the pandemic hit and they're like, Hey Raj, mm -hmm. uh, that online teaching thing. And now the podcast all of a sudden on RISA, this major lift serve, for example, in other spaces, academic spaces, all of a sudden I'm the go-to guy to promote academic work. 
it's like I I can't I don't know how any of this is happening, but I have to believe that it's happening for something much greater than the walking worm food that you see here, and that if I was able to carve out this niche, this path, that my hope is that others can benefit, um, bright young driven people who may not um, jobs may not exist or they may not be for them, yet. I, I kind of, I, I really and truly feel like there's a massive shift happening. I've said it before. I gave a talk on my alma mater, Calgary, uh, for the doctorate anyways. Toronto was for the, the BA and MA. University of Calgary, and it was called, you know, um, the self-employed scholar. Like I'm saying, think of yourself as a scholar. You are a scholar. Go be a scholar. If you get a university job and you want one, great. If not, go research, you know. A couple of people that I coach one-on-one, I do a variety of coaching, mostly life coaching, personal growth coaching, every once in a while, professional coaching. A couple of people are bright people producing research, both of whom have decided to, one has decided to bypass the PhD because she doesn't need it. She's more than bright enough and skilled enough to produce proper research. And the other um, has the PhD, but they don't want to go into a traditional academic path. And they've, they've come to me, both of them have come to me and said, how did you do that? And I'm like, do what? And in speaking with these people, it's clear to me that what you're saying is true. There was this growing movement of, um, I want to say sort of silos of the ivory tower, you know, or networks that are outside of the ivory tower, but accomplishing the work thereof. One of my goals is to start to actually network these, to link these platforms that are popping up all over the place. And you've mentioned a couple of them. Um, in a more of a kind of consortium, like an un-university consortium of schools and support each other. Because I think that right there is a sense in which the online space can feel competitive because there's only so much attention that you can, um, you know, uh, there's a finite amount of attention on the internet or presumably. And so sometimes there's a sort of competitiveness between platforms or, or might be. But I think, you know, the sea raises all ships and the more we kind of integrate um, and support one another, I think the better um, the work will be. Well, here, here's an interesting position I find myself in. So I run this podcast called New Books and New Religions, variety of listeners, mostly scholarship-based. Every once in a while, we'll do a conversation with, we'll talk about developments. Literally, as silly as it is, I produce tons of online content, but I'm an old-fashioned conversational guy, so it was a huge struggle for me to actually get my tentacles to work online. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) to navigate this ocean of life that we're in. Um, But I don't, I don't, I produce a fair bit of online content, but I don't consume any of it. I don't consume online content. So naively, this must be, I mean, April, 2020. Yeah. uh, March, April. I come across this platform called the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies and their online courses. And I'm like, I would have loved to know these were there as, as a grad student or to, to send some of my existing students to. And, and I email them and I say, Hey, would one of you want to come on the podcast? And, you know, I'm sure the people on the podcast would want to know you exist. It might be great for the platform. It's a great platform. And they say, yes. And Nick Sutton comes on. And then when we're done, he's like, well, do you want to teach it? At, how would you like to teach at the OCHS? Cause it seems like you understand this kind of embodied, um, teaching paradigm that's not unrigorous like your, your your brain works you're a good scholar like you understand what's you know what's what in that dimension but also you understand that it's much more than about um dry history and so i said sure why not and so at the same time i had seth 
on the podcast and then promoting yoga. I'm promoting OCHS. I'm promoting yoga studies. And I have my own online school. I'm either naive or who knows what, uh, but I don't see it as direct competition in that. Yeah. There's certain things you can get out the OCHS you can't get anywhere else and vice versa. You know, on the one hand, a division of labor makes it very clear what spaces are the best at what and best known for what. Um, and also, um, if, if if all the platforms have a similar course, then let the best one rise to the top. Let the cream rise to the top. Let the market mm-hmm. teach us how to be better. So I, I agree with you entirely. I, I really and truly feel that um, uh, there are different niches and there's different, the, the same students can be served in different ways by our various platforms and different students will very, will resonate with different platforms. Like at the OCHS, you'll have um, a fantastic learning experience, but you're not going to have Parampara teachings, for example, right? That's not a space we'll, we're going to speak from an emic paradigm of this is the way it's been taught, or these are practices for this Kundalini experience, or this chakra is out of balance because it's it's so you're not going to have that there. Not going to have that there. No. Well, um, uh, um, I'm uh, I'm currently running a course called um, 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 Sacred Body, so it's looking at you know the the, the Sukshma Sharira. So it's top of mind at the moment because I'm currently <laughs> creating videos on it. And there are students who study with me at the OCHS for one thing and study at the school for another thing. And there, there are students who take my course at Yogic Studies for one thing. So I think I have a fair bit of data to corroborate that you're absolutely right. You know, in your vision of, of a consortium. Yeah, I'm, that's definitely one of the kind of short to long-term goals is to to spearhead and to kind of and bring people together in that way. So Raj, let's talk a little bit about the Puranas, um, because obviously, you know, as you've been mentioning in passing, so much of your work is about uh, Hindu narrative and um, narratives, the Puranas and the Mahabharata, so on and so forth. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast and who are... Um, students of embodied philosophy started out in a kind of yoga asana context and they were introduced to, you know, what they were told taught to be Hinduism or yoga philosophy or Indian philosophy by either the six darshanas or, um, you know, the sutra texts or the Upanishads. And oftentimes the Puranas are either not taught at all, you know, in the context of yoga teacher trainings or they are sort of mentioned in passing as kind of that's the sort of mythological text that, you know, is, is more religious in nature and isn't properly, quote unquote, philosophical. So I'm, I'm wondering why you think um, we have neglected the Puranas, if you think that, um, if we, that we've neglected the Puranas and um, why we have such a kind of black and white view of them. And what the what the utility or significance of them is um, from kind of a spiritual perspective? I think that there are a number of reasons why philosophy, quote unquote, has been prioritized over Purana, and that's been the case certainly in Indological scholarship, without question. Philosophical texts have received far more attention than narrative texts. And within the world of narratives, the Puranas are kind of at the kiddie table of, 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 the, of, the, of, the, of the function, right? 
There are a number of reasons for that, depending on the order of analysis. We prioritize certain modes of knowledge, right, in our culture, and perhaps rightly so. Um, but in prioritizing, you know, rational, discursive paradigms, we often overlook symbolic modes of communication, symbolic modes of of encoding, and symbols and stories. They encode um, in a much more dense, sophisticated manner. It would take uh, books and books to decode what's in the most basic Puranic story. Because the nature of story is to encode things densely, right? And then imprint them upon the listeners, the hearers, even the authors. And this is how culture is propagated. The stories we tell, they're the tissues of our consciousness. They're the tissues of our civilization. We internalize them. Nobody takes seriously a little Red Riding Hood, but but immeasurable is the impact such stories have on the on on the consciousness of an individual and the consciousness of a culture. Um, the foundational narratives of our civilization, religious narratives, uh, Genesis and Exodus. If I begun to unpack the ways in which that bias remains in vogue in our secular world, it would be mind-blowing and disturbing alike. Civilizations are made of stories. Psyches are made of stories. They're the very basis of consciousness for the sake of making meaning out of life. It's why we, we say, well, what's his story? You're asking me for my story. You're not asking me for my CV. You're not asking me for my data chart of my, my timeline. What are you asking me for? What am I interested in? I want to know your story. How did you, you know, how, how did you start uh, embodied philosophy? What, what, you know, uh, right? Narrative, storytelling, that is how we make sense of the human experience. Puranic stories, like all stories, they encode philosophy. They encode theology. They encode religion, metaphysics, culture. They teach you when you least expect it. They teach you when you are being entertained or inspired. And this is the nature of narrative. This, hello, like this is why storytelling, mythological storytelling is so gripping. You don't believe me? Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. Gripping the difference between sci-fi fantasy and the myths of, of ancient times is that sci-fi fantasy is a safe space to unfurl mythic narratives because one understands them to be uh, entertainment and secular. But mythic narratives, they're the building blocks of sci-fi fantasy, without question. I had a course at the University of Toronto School of Continuing uh, Studies called Myth and Meaning that I designed in 2010. I was there from uh, seven years, mostly close to a decade. And that course was the most popular. For the first part of the course, I'd look at ancient narratives, ancient Near Eastern primarily, Greek, Rome, Persia. And then for the second part of the course, I'd look at modern sci-fi fantasy. And the students' minds were blown open to see the same building blocks. And the argument of the course is that this is what moves us. When everybody is, you know, when everybody applauds seeing Luke destroy the Death Star, this is the glory of God. 
This is what, in a religious context, is a religious experience. It's triumphant. It's, it's, it's exalting. It's larger than life. It's, it's Daenerys on a dragon, right? It's just, it's, 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 it's awe-inspiring. And this is the function and the power of myth. It encodes so much about who we are. It inspires, it enlivens. You know, one of my favorite stories to tell of all time is the churning of the ocean narrative. The churning of the ocean. There's so, there's so much wisdom and philosophy there that although I'm a thousand years old, I've, I've told it 10,000 times, I still see something more clearly every single time I tell it. Something pertaining to yoga philosophy. And so the Yogic Studies course was what? Yoga in Hindu mythology, why? The course is arguing or showing that yogic philosophy is internalized in Puranic narratives. The gods sent uh, Kama, the Indian Cupid, if you want to do this kind of comparison game, Kama, desire to tempt Shiva. Shiva opened his third eye and singed Kama. The opening of the Agnya, transcending desire, because the first five chakras are the Mahabhutas. And once you transcend Akasha, you're beyond desire. The philosophy is there. And Shiva, Lord of the Yogis, singeing Kama with his Agnya. It's internalized. But you see, this is the thing. There's so many, many vignettes. Ganesha winning the race around the world. Kartikeya going off. Proud on his peacock to show in the outer world that he's supreme. He's first among the gods. Ganesha going inward, connecting with the with the cosmic Wi-Fi, downloading insight, yeah. circumambulating his parents, circumambulating Shiva and Parvati and understanding uh, Shakti and Shiva, consciousness and form are all things. He encircled the everlasting. His brother encircled the outer. This is philosophy in this simple story of a race around the world between Ganesha and his brother. And this is why Ganesha is the first among gods. This is why Ganesha is the Lord of Wisdom. Because he understands this. And when you tell the story, on an unconscious level, people pick up the theme without having to read a lick of Patanjali. You can, you can argue about Patanjali till the cows come home, but if you don't understand why Ganesha is first among the gods and not his brother Kartikeya, you have no hope in hell in grappling with Patanjali. Mm. Mm. Even when you take one mantra, sometimes you can just, from that mantra, unpack so much. You know, it's like each element of the story becomes, like you're saying, a condensed seed that then the whole sort of, you know, or at least a kind of certain element of the philosophical uh, point comes out of that as you kind of tell the story and interpret the story. And it gives sort of a locus for exploration, which might otherwise feel harder to find because the tradition can be so vast. If you're just sort of trying to get a grasp of all of it, you know, simultaneously, like what is, you know, what is Hindu philosophy at its core, but rather going uh, first to a story or a narrative or, or a particular myth. It just, I mean, perhaps it's why so many of the devotional 
um, teachers, you know, when they're doing satsang, they start with myths and, and then go, and then extrapolate philosophical teachings from there. Because exactly. it's so effective as a pedagogical tool, really. And not only are our are, are mythological narratives used as pedagogy, they they describe pedagogy. Typically, a teaching comes why? Because one character asked another character a question, the Bhagavad Gita, right? The philosophy comes from a mythological context. Philosophy is the buddhi. Mythology is the manas. It's the manas where the problem is, not in the buddhi. People can sharpen their buddhi all they want. When they come back to their manas and they have zipper problems or spending problems or eating problems or, 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 or megalomania, it's the manas. This is, this, is, this is the seat of culture. This is the seat of how we process. This is our operating system. Um, <laughs> one sort of metaphor that comes to mind that I, I, I there are a couple of courses at the, um, well, mythology pervades, I think, most of my courses, but there's, there's a Purana course at the OCHS. And I say, look, you know, it's like you're thirsty, right? You're in the desert and you're thirsty. All you want is some water. That's all you want. You're philosophically thirsty. You want some water. And uh, your mouth's parched. And here comes, you know, this guy here. And he, he gives you a coconut. And you want to throw it open at me and crack my head open because you're like a coconut. It's hard. It's dry. Who the hell wants that in there? I, I, I can barely feel my tongue. It's so parched. A coconut. What are you, nuts? I pull out my little machete. I crack open the coconut and drip it in their mouth best hydration they've ever had. This is myth. This is mythological narrative. The juice is there. The philosophical hydration is there. But you have to know to crack the coconut or find a fool like me with a machete who can crack it open for you. And then you can drink. Yeah. Wow. I love that. That's such a beautiful metaphor for for mythology, cracking the coconut to get the juice inside. Yeah, because I think that is the, really the way that many perceive it, and particularly the West. I think, of obviously, when you're, you know, when you grow up being a person of Indian descent, or you grow up in India, I mean, the Puranas are sort of all pervasive, right? They're around you. They're in the kind of fabric of of the culture. And then when Westerners uh, sort of go to study them, then it's sort of this impenetrable surface, right? And and it's like you're saying, like the we lack the machete, we lack the tool. What's the tool? Um, and so what is the tool really? Is it, is it a kind of, is there a particular hermeneutical strategy that like we as Westerners need to kind of cultivate? Is it just about having the right teacher? What is, what is the, what is the machete that cracks the coconut? I, I think that there are, um, asanas will benefit everyone. Some are suited to understand and teach asanas, some not, and that's okay. So I think that there are individuals on the planet who are skilled at interpreting narrative, much like there are individuals skilled at adjusting postures or teaching postures or, or teaching pranayama or, or anything, cooking, accounting. There are those whose minds work that way, right? And so I think there are people, uh, there, there are, uh, Specialists, uh, um, connoisseurs who know how to interpret myth, 
uh, particularly Indian myth, not all interpretations are equal. I think it'll be clear to listeners which ones resonate the deepest because the interpreter is not planting something into the myth. They're, sh they're, sh they're, they're revealing something that's already there. And when that's revealed, you can't unsee it. And you're like, ah, Shiva, third eye, comma. Oh yeah, desire. You can't unsee it. So it stays with you. Um, but I think that you know, for me to find an accountant to do my taxes, I first have to believe that I should be paying the government taxes. <laughs> and I have to want to be on top of it all, you know, and I, I have to value that. I have to value commerce. I have to value um, um, the government in some way or the, the role thereof. You know, it's it, it, at the level of the individual, it's not, you know, everything's... Um, put on the burden, uh, the burdens put on the individual to do everything. Theologians and philosophers can't figure out the mysteries of life after thousands of years, but every individual with wireless and Wikipedia should be able to. I don't think so. But I think, I think that we could understand that we prioritize the left brain at the expense of the right brain. And this is the great bias of our civilization, perhaps any civilization to some extent, except the ancients showed feats of astounding mathematics and engineering to build structures for what? The sake of divinity, reverence. And so I think understanding that our left brains run amok and understanding, you know, perhaps there is something to be said about narrative. Perhaps there's something to be said about lived experience versus objectified experience. It's just respecting the power of narrative or taking a leap of faith that there's much more there than nonsense. And this view is not just among Westerners. This view has been there among Indians. I've had Indians come to my courses who are just astounded at the same stuff that they never bothered teaching their kids they wish they had. Because they're consciously seeing the value of unconsciously imprinting these values on on people. And so I think it's just a question of valuing story. So I have a follow-up question to that, which is, you know, in it seems like what you're suggesting is that, or at least what kind of seems to follow is that in some sense, um, in a larger from a larger cultural vantage point, we have forgotten the role of, of narrative and story and the way in which stories um, shape our, uh, you know, our kind of matrices of meaning and our, our, our sense of the good and all of this. So do you see there being, so then in a sense, we're still telling stories to each other, right? But there's this sense that it becomes unconscious, right? And we're kind of telling ourselves stories which are changing the cultural fabric without necessarily recognizing that perhaps the stories that we're telling ourselves are leading us into, I don't know, forms of suffering, <laughs> for example. So do you think that, you know, if you could kind of highlight, um, if you think there is one, uh, a story that we are telling ourselves that isn't true, that actually if we are to be more cognizant of the role of stories in the formation of consciousness, and then harness the power of stories to transform our consciousness, what would be that kind of core story that we're letting ourselves believe um, that is perpetuating perhaps a lot of the pain, suffering, and division that we're seeing? 
All right. And so I just want to, to, I suppose, articulate that we're moving now from the realm of mythological storytelling to the realm of personal storytelling or civilizational storytelling. Um, what I want to say is that story, stories are powerful. Um, we wonderfully privilege the rational waking band of consciousness, which is obviously very important. It's not the only band of consciousness that we have, nor is it necessarily the most powerful. If it was the conscious mind where behavior was rooted, then self-help would be a dying industry because people would be getting help. <laughs> it wouldn't be growing and growing and growing because the more books people read, the more confused they are because it's not this computational mind where the behaviors are and the blind spots are. It's in the unconscious abyss of narrative. The narratives that we hold. So I had a unconscious story. This is the issue. My conscious mind said, well, you know, I'm not bright enough for a degree. I come from a long line of laborers. I have a white collar job now. I've made it. I'm fine. I'm doing decent work. I'm helping people at this company, blah, 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 to justify the decision to drop out of school. The, the conceit is that I'm just one of these people who's not smart enough to get a degree. That obviously can't be the case. What it was, it was masking an unconscious story. You're not worthy of a degree. Who the hell do you think you are? Go back to where you come from. <laughs> Whatever that is, whether that's demographically, whether that's sociologically, whether that's um, geopolitically, ethnically, whatever that is, go back to where you come from. So it's just a snippet, and we all do this. And as a coach working with people, I can taste, I can smell the story that's operating. That I can taste the story, sometimes even in emails. Right. I could taste the story. I could always tell there is a story at play. And more often than I can tell what story is at play. And it's really useful because helping somebody to break through a behavioral issue, a pattern that they're trying to break through, what one has to do is understand the way out of the story that they're caught in without even realizing they're caught in a story. So it's shedding light on the story they're unconsciously telling about themselves about the world, uh, um, you know, uh, whatever, pick anything. Uh, nobody likes me because um, I'm a certain color or gender orientation. Maybe you're just abrasive. <laughs> Maybe you're just an abrasive person who wants to play the victim and play whatever cards you can to get through life. Maybe that's not objectively the case. Maybe it is. The point is, it's the level of the story that you take as reality. Now, civilizationally, this is very, very powerful. We, the modern West hails from a creation narrative that is wonderfully masculine, wonderfully rational, wonderfully organized, but perilously so in terms of, um, you know, the right brain, the feminine. Um, we have a narrative. We, as you know, the global village is certainly in the modern West. We're a secular society because we think that we don't need a mythological narrative, but everybody needs a mythological narrative. So unconsciously, our mythological story is that 
the earth was a thing created by God on high, given to us to be used and abused for to have dominion over for our service. And it's that unconscious narrative that has that has undergirded, for example, the Industrial Revolution. If it was a different civilization with a different story of creation, then sure, they'd have their own blind spots, but pissing on the planet to get to work every day wouldn't be one of them. If you could imagine a different world culture, uh, uh, Shinto, Tao, Native Americans, some aspects of Hinduism, if for whatever reason in some alternate universe they were... Uh, the founders of a of, of of the global village, certainly they'd have their own pitfalls and their own BS to deal with, but understanding that nature's alive and sentient and needing to be in relationship with it wouldn't be one of those pitfalls. You see, so every civilization has a story it tells itself about itself. This is just an example about some of the 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 the, the, the most mythological strata of the consciousness of a western consciousness you see yeah i don't know if i've answered your question or not but i hope you find this no you have and i love it i love that you brought up the way in which you know um because many people will be like well i'm not a christian and i don't uh, believe that i have dominion over nature but it's still even in the even in the so- secular you i mean there's an argument to be made and people have already made it obviously about how secular culture still is kind of embedded in this, you know, man's dominion over nature. And it's unconsciously it is. Yeah. And you still, you just took God out of the equation, but you left the relationship with nature intact. Because that exactly. But this is what, this is what I'm saying. This blew my brain open in 2010 when I was preparing for this course. It's like, I saw the code of the matrix for a moment. I'm like, Oh, we're living in a story where, existence truth being is masculine there is no feminine it creates asexually and obviously there are issues here because it creates man and then woman is a helpmate we're in trouble because of woman woman gets us kicked out of eden and what's woman's punishment rather than the neighbors of this narrative who say who exalt the fecundity and the fertility of the feminine those people who live on riverbanks mesopotamia land of two rivers Egypt, the Nile, civilization. Why? Because the water element, the crops, the surplus, the empire, desert people, no water, no feminine, masculine only, desert war god. This is in the mythic imagination. I don't mean any particular people currently, but in the mythic imagination. What is the role of the feminine? demonized every turn and the divine curses rather than the divine blessing in the womb of eve the divine curses it's a curse to bear children because of the pain you'll feel and your curse mr man you get to deal with this bitch of an earth you have to go plow and make your own bread and we know the earth is a problem because what the earth can't give you bread i'll give you bread from the sky the water elements in your way I'll move it aside so you can have dry land. It's a powerful, powerful narrative that exalts the one true masculine God. It's a powerful narrative, but it has blind spots and it has issues arise when it comes to honoring the feminine, uh, women in particular, but the feminine principle at large, it's part of all human beings. Um, And also issues arise with being in harmonious relationship with nature, where nature isn't separate from humanity, which isn't separate from divinity, 
but somehow we're all in this together. There's a web of life. We're all part of the great spirit, whatever metaphor, the Tao, whatever metaphor you want to use, uh, Prakriti, the play of Prakriti and Purusha. Um, it's not that people individually believe this, but it's unconscious bias. And this is what we're working so hard to overturn in this generation. Biases against certain orientations, certain skin colors, certain genders, certain whatever. But civilizationally, we have these biases too. Mm -hmm. So how do we get there then? Like, how do we, like from your perspective, just on a very practical level, you know, in terms of, I guess, spiritual practice or uh, processes of inquiry, like how do we kind of begin to move in the direction of eradicating this insofar as we <clears throat> believe it to be a problem, which I think it seems that we do, <laughs> Um, uh, that uh, start to eradicate this kind of this master narrative that is that is sort of because it does seem that e we can we can philosophically articulate yes there's a problem yes the earth is alive and blah 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 but unless we're experientially imbibing that what good is it I mean what good is it to simply say everything is one and the earth is a conscious being if I don't actually physically like uh, feel that within myself and, and, and feel my own relationship to the earth in that kind of relationship with a, uh, you know, um, a conscious being that is also an extension of myself. So how do we, you know, how do we go from the, the philosophical kind of understanding articulation, positing of that to the, the experience of it, I guess, is the question. Well, from what, from what I've heard, the answer to the question uh, you, you've answered the question from what I've heard uh, insofar as insofar as dismantling uh, the, the uh, dismantling the the story that an entire civilization is caught up in is certainly not the work of one individual or even one generation. What we can do is become conscious of the story that we're caught up in and if you think you're not caught up in a story, you're all the more caught up. You're caught up in a story, a story that limits your range of motion and being, a narrative that pertains to the body you're in, a narrative that pertains to your abilities, a narrative that pertains to your socioeconomic class, a narrative pertaining to society. And the narratives that you're caught up in, you will project wherever you go. Because when you go through life with a hammer in your head, Everything looks like a nail, doesn't it? So what I would invite folks to do is to become aware. Become aware of the stories that you first and foremost are caught up in. Now, there might be, you know, a score or so souls on the planet right now whose destiny it is to make huge headway or facilitate huge headway on this man. I mean, that's uh, uh, good. 20 or so souls with... with various followings whose dharma it is to overturn dismantle supplant replace um, alchemize purify uh, the civilizational story or stories that we're caught up in but what i would say that's most pressing is that you're caught up in a story that is limiting you in your life and you working on yourself in that way, not towards ego, but towards 
spirits or witness personal development more than megalomania. But you working on yourself in that way is only going to ameliorate how you treat the planet, the lives that you touch, the ways in which you can contribute towards something larger. And one of the great pitfalls of our age is um, being caught up in various isms without mm-hmm. taking care of your own yard first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, so you answered your own question. Uh, yeah, but you made the answer so much better. Um, it reminds me of this. Is, War team. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, this is sort of a perfect segue, and I didn't intend to use this as a plug, but it's um, it's a great segue to our to mention our conference that's coming up in a couple of weeks, which is on spiritual citizenship. Um, because I feel like what you're saying, <clears throat> it actually is almost the same as one of the talks that one of the speakers is giving, which is called spiritual activism is an inside job. And and part of her kind of point there is that it starts from, you know, tending your own yard as you're as you're describing. And and we can't bypass that work. It's not about doing one instead of the other. Right. It's one is a means. Bypass. The other. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like there's a there's a there's a. Um, there's a presumption, I think, that's still kind of widely held that you either, you know, you're either navel gazing in your spiritual practice or you're doing, you know, the real activist work out in the field. And really these things just can't be separated, right? Because as you're suggesting, it's like your own personal story. If you haven't resolved it or recognized the ways in which it's limiting you, then you're just going to, you know, vomit it all over everyone else <laughs> uh, for a lack of a Without question, you, you will project... Uh, you'll project your baggage onto situations where it's unwarranted. In addition, you may encounter situations that needs to be remedied and consciously or unconsciously, it'll be too painful for you to, you'll do great damage to yourself and maybe even those you're trying to help and save because you are hemorrhaging. It's really triggered you. It's very different. If someone makes a racial slur on the street, it's very different if I'm coming from a space of partially buying into them or believing in them or not having forgiven all the racism I've endured or whatever. It's very different when one can see it for what it is outside of the personal wounding or story and address it from that perspective. It's very different from what you're doing is you're getting caught up in the story that they're wanting to co-author with you. And you're giving them your power without realizing it because they're getting precisely the response that they want, which is to keep you in that story. And you are keeping yourself in that story in the name of activism, in the name of breaking free. Wow. That was just a wisdom bomb if I ever heard it. <laughs> wisdom bomb. Can I use that? Can I use that at the School Absolutely. of Indian Wisdom? Wisdom bomb. Yes, please. <laughs> Jacob calls them wisdom bombs. I actually really want, I really, um, we're going to wrap up here. This has been such a fabulous conversation. I could talk to you all day and I only got through about half uh, my topics, but I think that just means there's more for us to talk about later. Um, I love this expression you used, and I'm going to ask you at some point to give a talk on this, the cosmic Wi-Fi, um, which I just think is a lovely expression that um, everybody will be into learning about. And um, it's a powerful metaphor that I think would be really awesome to explore. Um, But that's another day. Um, Raj, is there anything that you'd like to share um, with the audience before we close for the day in terms of what's coming up for you, in terms of your own platform, your own podcast, all the things you want to share that people can 
uh, find out about you? Yeah, I, I guess um, if you want an overview of what I do, I guess just rajbalkarin.com would be the best place that gives you the different pieces of my life, whether it's there's a scholarship page that you can download um, articles and chapters for free if you're interested in scholarship on the Puranas. Um, there's a consultation page if you're looking for life coaching. I think most people are really interested in the teaching bits. So I, I tutor some courses at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, also there. The best place to go if you want to study with me is courses.rajbalkran.com. That's tagged to an online school that I've set up called the School of Indian Wisdom. It's not a misnomer. But rather than learn about wisdom traditions, it's like we're learning from them. Rather than just worrying about the history, uh, which is important, we're, we're talking about the ontology, the experience, the evolution of consciousness in some way. Currently, what am I teaching? The school's new. I opened it in, I've been teaching on, online for about four or five years, but I opened the school in March, end of March, in response to COVID, because there's a lot of people who really wanted to learn stuff. Um, what am I teaching now? I'm doing a course called Sacred Body, um, um, Subtle Anatomy and Its Significance. You're more than welcome to join me for that. Join me for whatever you want. As a boon to this audience, you can use the code 50OFF, 50OFF, and have 50OFF, half off anything at the school that you want. How's that? That sounds amazing. You know, one of the things that I've often talked about um, in just private conversations and and just more widely, broad, broadly, is that I think, and I wrote about this actually in this this article I wrote for Tarka recently, that there's a conflation, I think, of yoga history with yoga philosophy. And, I, yes. and, and to me, I feel like there, what is being taught as yoga philosophy in a lot of, in a lot of contexts is just, is yoga history. And, and what I mean by philosophy when I say yoga philosophy is exactly what you said in terms of learning from Indian wisdom rather than studying the historical unfolding of Indian wisdom. It's the very name of your, of your conglomeration, Jacob, says it all for me. It's embodied wisdom, embodied philosophy. It's not computation. Artificial intelligence will never, never be able to embody wisdom. Thank you. I've been saying, <laughs> I just think that mathematicization of, of consciousness in that way. I, uh, anyway, that's a whole nother conversation we could have. I suspect that, well, forgive me for triggering you. You're safe. You're <laughs> left. All is well. Um, 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 the, the thing is, it's hard to know exactly what students need. And I'm learning as I go along. And initially it was, Integrating scholarship with life storytelling, with spiritual wisdom, parampara teachings, I realize more and more what they want is lineal teachings, wisdom teachings, a sprinkling of sources here, or you know, storytelling for sure. But one thing they said time and time again, and you might be able to resonate with this, um, they said there are so many courses giving the history of these things. We don't need that. We want someone to bring it alive for us, like help us integrate it. Oh, okay, great, cool. So, embodied philosophy. <laughs> there you go. Yes, that's exactly what that's exactly what it's about, and um, and I totally agree. I'm so glad that we're synergistically aligned in that way. Well, Raj, it's been such a pleasure. And um, again, check out rajbalkarin.com and courses.rajbalkarin.com 
for um, his uh, wonderful offerings on the School of Indian Wisdom. And check out his podcast, New Books in... Indian Religions. New Books in Indian Religions, which I will hopefully accept my request for to be a guest on at some point here soon. There is no try, do or do not, says Yoda. Will you appear on the podcast? <laughs> I will, yes. Swaha. My work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Raj, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you.